Welcome to the UP Tech Talk podcast. This is Ben Kahn at the University of Portland. Today I'm joined by my co-host Maria Erb. Hey Ben. How's it going today, Maria? Great. Cool. And we have with us in the studio today two gentlemen from the UP School of Education. We have Dr. Eric Engtel and Dr. Randy Hetherington. Welcome. Thank you, Ben. Nice it's to good be you. here. So this, uh, this episode came about uh, one night a couple months ago. I was probably in bed doing my nightly Twitter routine. My night mode turned on on Twitter so I didn't get kicked out of bed. Uh, and I saw Randy tweeting something about incorporating the ISTE standards uh, into his curriculum here at UP. So I tweeted Adam, hey, you want to come on the podcast and talk about it? And he said, yeah, but only if I can bring uh, Eric on as well. So um, here we are, and we wanted to find out a little bit, for those that don't know, because this might be a little bit more specific to School of Education, but very applicable to anyone that's interested in the kind of intersection of technology and curriculum. Um, so what are the ISTE standards and how did they come about, at least in terms of how did they come about being brought into the University of Portland? Sure. Well, I mean, the ISTE standards themselves, they're not, they're not just national, they're actually international. And um, they're a way that we could acknowledge the role of technology uh, and what it can do, both in the classroom, outside the classroom, in learning environments, wherever those learning environments, frankly, are, are taking place. And that's why I wanted to have Eric join us today, because part of it is knowing why we want this to take place in the first place. And I think it's probably the most important question. And Simon Sinek does a, a great uh, TED Talk on that. If we only knew our why, maybe the hows and the whats would fit in a lot better. And I know Eric uh, is right on top of kind of where we need to be and why technology needs to be something that we look at as a not just a tool in the classroom, but as something that these generations of students, the generations we teach, they are a part of it already. And so we as their teachers also need to be a part of it. So. Yeah, I think that one of the things that makes these standards important is that, especially for technology, is technology has oftentimes historically been thought of as an add-on tool to education. And so you have a technology class that's a standalone where you learn how to use a projector. If you're going to be training a, to be a teacher, let's mm -hmm. say, and you learn how to do use tape recorders or you learn how to use the, um, the recorders and headphone sets that your students might be listening to a phonics lesson on back in the 70s. But it's always, or it's at least traditionally been, kind of an add-on to the things that are happening in schools. And we need more intentionality about how we infuse technology into the curriculum because as is reflected in the larger society, it's becoming the thing. It, I feel like in many ways it's always been the add-on thing and now it's becoming the thing. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean? And what does it mean for our students who, if let's say in the mid 80s, you didn't have much of an interest in the Apple IIe computer that was in the corner of the one classroom that had the one computer, you could ignore it. You didn't. Ha no one made you carry around a, a Sony Walkman. <laughs> um, and some people couldn't afford them and it just, technology was always at an arm's length away. But today, it's so much easier for so many um, students to be involved in these digital spaces that we have to, with more intentionality, think about the why questions. Like, why, why do we need these things? And I really believe that we have an ethical obligation to meet our students where they are and to give them an incredibly powerful tool like a cell phone that has worldwide distribution capabilities that can record 4K video that will archive anything they do and can be a very powerful tool good but also a very destructive tool if used improperly and then just to tell these kids here you go good luck by the way it's like giving them a car that can drive a thousand miles an hour and handing them the keys and not really explaining to them all the things that it does and so I think that as we educate teachers 
and future teachers and think about their role, we have to meet our students where they are. And we they need our guiding hand. And the ISTE standards speak to some of those things. It's mm-hmm. it's imperfect, but all things are. But I think yeah. that that's the, the larger why thing is, is definitely um, where I'm thinking on why we need these things. Yeah, and to extend Eric's metaphor one step further, you know, if that we're like the driver's education course mm-hmm. for, for this new tool, for this new sports car. And the ISTE standards are an important part of the manual. Sure. And so we need to, I mean, some of the things for students include things like digital citizenship. Well, right. I mean, this is important. They need to know how not just to use the tool, but to use it in a way that maximizes what it can do for them, but doesn't offend others, does not cause more issues uh, than the things that it's helping. Uh, it asks them to become a creative communicator. There's so much talent and power uh, in that new tool, in that sports car. And so if we can help them as teachers to know what it's about and how to, they'll discover the power. They'll create. So how are these standards being incorporated into the curriculum here at UP? Well, with the School of Education, and I, I think, I'm not sure if this is campus-wide per se, but it certainly is throughout the School of Education. Uh, we're required because we're an education program provider and we have to teach the teachers and prepare them for our school system. Uh, We have to pay attention to uh, the leadership standards, to the dyslexia standards, to uh, the ed TPA standards for the state of Oregon. ISTE is the latest in the standards that have now been mandated for us to make sure that we're including in all of our syllabi because, as Eric said, it's our ethical charge to help our students understand this tool and be able to use this tool um, to their best advantage. And if we don't do our part, then it won't happen. And the, I think the standards become um, an expression of intentionality about commitment. We're committed to teachers who are going to be working with future classrooms of students who are cognizant of and thinking about what those student needs are. And it becomes a language by which we can communicate our values, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I worry sometimes that we are that the standards movement has become so bloated that they become washed watered out or watered down rather mm-hmm. um, and it does worry me but at the same time when I look at these standards and when I look at any of them really on point I think yeah there's goodness in here I mean it is an expression of our our values how best can we use them to put into our classes the things that we think future educators are going to need and so to me they're an ex- really an expression of value there mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but like, how closely do you feel that you have to align every single thing you do to each one of these standards, which are all good things, like you said, being a good digital citizen, learning how to collaborate more effectively, designing your own multimedia, things like that, they're all really valuable. But how much of it is more of just like a series of guiding principles versus something that you're really like teaching directly to each standard? I'd say it's both in that um, the program, our unit does a review, kind of an audit really of all the classes that we offer and we say where, we ask ourselves where are these standards appropriate for which classes so that we, that way we can narrow down and and focus on the things that are there. And then we have key assessments or some kind of an assessment that looks to measure the things that students are doing to address whatever standard might be there. So in that way I think that there's a targeted uh, approach to making sure that that the curriculum is adhering to what the standard is is trying to introduce. And then on the other hand, yeah. we it has a, a broader sense that we should be thinking about these things in totality, so there's not an exclusivity to it. Mm-hmm. Digital citizenship is something that, that everyone can be striving for, even the educator or even the professor. You know, it's like we all need to be thinking about how if right. we send an terse, you know, an email 
that could be very, you know, very uncivil and, and not expressive of a digital citizen, right. you know. And, and it's something that can be conceptualized in so many ways from very, like, simple and narrow to really broad and, mm-hmm. like, is it not using all caps in your, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> in your yeah. typing yeah. or is there something more yeah. to it than that? Yeah. Right? Um, well, and for example, you know, the ISTE standards for, for teachers, there's five of them. And we don't attempt to uh, have all five represented in every single course that we teach in the School of Ed. However, we've taken those five and kind of crosswalked them or mapped them across our courses to make sure that if a student goes through our program to become a teacher, they will at some point have encountered all of the ISTE standards Mm -hmm. and address them in some meaningful way through assessment, through something that has been recorded. And something that I'll, I'll give credit to a, a good colleague of mine, uh, Maria. You might have heard about her. She does <laughs> podcasts from time to time. And, and she always emphasizes it's, it's, okay, what are you going to do with it? Having it on paper in a syllabus is one thing. But what we found in, in educational research, if it's not embedded in the planning process, and that's what we're teaching our, our teachers to do, is build this in when you're planning your unit. Build this in when you're planning your lesson. Right. Don't assume you'll be able to seize the moment or slide it in. That's when it becomes, as Eric, I think, said in the introduction, a one-off or something right. that we just kind of cover off. If you're, if we understand this, we want to be intentional about building it into the planning because, as I tell my students over and over, great planning and great teaching builds a great community in the classroom, one that's globally aware, that's creative, and can do the things we want them to do. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to embed it. You have to make sure that it's built into the plan so it's there and make sure it gets done. Are you running into any resistance or opposition to incorporating these standards? I'm not, no. I think that if there's any resistance that I sometimes perceive, it's that people aren't naturally inclined to embrace technology, and so they want to keep it at a distance in some way. And I just think that I I, I just, it's kind of like saying, well, I'm only a math teacher, and so the reading literacy stuff, it doesn't really apply. Mm -hmm. But it does. Your students need to know how to read, and they need to know how to read in in a language, and they need to know how to be literate in math. But you have an obligation to meet them at least minimally in the places that they need you. And I'd say the same thing for technology. But in terms of resistance, I think it's sometimes people, and then the other thing is that people feel like they're not techie people in general. Oh, I don't Mm -hmm. have uh, that new of a cell phone, or I don't use my computer that often, which is fine. Those are personal choices that you can make, but I think that you, that I believe that as an educator, you have an obligation to meet your students in those spaces, even if they're not they don't appeal to you. In the same way that I think if you're teaching high school, occasionally go to a soccer game that your students are playing in. Occasionally attend the social events of your your school. You don't have to go to all of them, but the students see you there and they realize, oh, you value what I do outside mm-hmm. the classroom, or you value my life in its totality, not just in history class. So I, that's kind of my subtle way of pushing back against that. So I just challenge people, pick up a tool that's new to you and just give it a shot. And mm-hmm. you don't have to master all of these things. None of us do. But, but the ability to you know, have an open mind to trying and taking risks is not unlike being a student. And I yeah. think that, yeah. So that's, that's how I res- approach that resistance. Yeah. Well, I like the word you used, Eric, because that, that's the word that I, I wrote down in, in gathering my thoughts for the, for the podcast was the word challenge. And, and where do people see the challenge? And I guess that's the pushback, Maria, that, that I see is it's fear. Uh, and I, I think of colleagues, uh, I, I know my hair is a little grayer than the other folks around the table, and thank goodness this is radio and they can't see that. <laughs> but whether it is, you know, fear of technology uh, is one thing. Eric kind of addressed some of that. But it's also fear of confrontation because it's entirely possible now you could be in a classroom and have a student who knows more than you do about the app you're using, about the device you're using, etc. And as a teacher... If you haven't reconciled the fact that your students are going to know more about technology than you, 
that confrontation can be something you avoid, so therefore you don't embed it and put yourself in that scenario. Or it could simply be just fear of change itself. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and we all know that change is not comfortable. But as Eric said earlier, as teachers, it's our obligation to meet the students where they're at. And if that makes us a little uncomfortable, well, so be it. Uh, we've got some learning to do. And there is a learning curve. To, if you're going to innovate your classroom, some things aren't going to go well. You're going to be standing at the front of the room and things won't work the way you expected them to, or you won't it won't have the intended consequence that you were looking for, the outcome maybe. Um, and, but that's just part of being innovative as an educator. You have to be willing to have things go right. off course, and then the next time you correct them, and that's how you refine it. So I just, the challenge of just having, being the kind of educator who can say, you know what, I'm just going to give it my best effort on this and I'll learn from the experience and I will move on. That's lifelong learning. That's innovation. That's innovative teaching. Those are the things that we we say that we really believe in. I think it's authentic teaching too, um, just because when you are in a situation where there's technology being employed in the classroom, either just to enhance it or just to be more efficient or because it's state mandated or whatever, I mean, you are going to run into the situation where there's some whiz kid that, you know, <laughs> it's been like, oh, I've been doing this stuff since I was five and whatever, and I'm, I'm super advanced. So let's give like a shout out to um, one of my teachers down at Western Oregon. I took a Photoshop class from her and she started off the class by saying like, oh, you know, I've been working in Photoshop for 20 years, so I'm going to teach uh, some of you some stuff and some of you are going to teach me some stuff. Wow, and it was yeah. very true. Like That's a pretty humble position, mm-hmm. you know, that I'm going to learn from you, even mm-hmm. though I'm an expert in this and I've been doing it for many, many, many years. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that, at least for us, as we think about future educators, is how do we teach to someone's mm-hmm. humility so that they can come into a situation and recognize that they will learn from the process. Mm-hmm. And I think that technology is one of those ones that brings out the fears that this is going to be too sharp of a learning curve for me. I don't. I don't feel comfortable with it. I have a colleague in the in the school of education, and she's she has a compu- a desk or computer on her desk that it's got to be 15 years old. And I tell her, you know, you can they refresh these every few years. You should get a new computer. Oh, no, I just really like the computer I have, and I just it looks like it came out of a time machine. But what's interesting is last year when Pokemon Go, the augmented reality app was was a big hit in the summer her summer class she incorporated in an exercise having the students doing something with pokemon go mm-hmm. and i was like that's pretty awesome like that's a risk that it would make me nervous to take so it's she's not a tech savvy person but she knew that there was something that was really relevant in the moment and she harnessed that and used it with her students and she had students walking all over campus doing pokemon go augmented reality things related to her class mm-hmm. and i thought that's now that to me is like a that's a, a crown in the a jewel in the crown of how you do it. Like, that's it. Because she doesn't have to be tech savvy, but she has to be willing to use technology appropriately or, or and innovatively, really. So, yeah. yeah, I think you touched on a really uh, good point there. It's that spirit behind the, the motivation to do a lot of these things. Um, I know Ben and I have, have uh, talked recently with some, some, uh, some of our tech ambassadors that have done really innovative things in the classroom, but not because they wanted to use the latest tech thing, but because they wanted to connect with their students in a really relevant way. And I feel like that's what you're speaking about here. You know, it's that desire that teachers have to connect with their students. And a lot of times it's going to involve these new tools and new technologies and new right. ways of doing it. But because they've got that heart behind it, mm-hmm. that leads them. Yeah. You know? well, I think it's just a recognition, too, of education having to change because the world has changed to be so much more full of possibilities, both, you know, really exciting and really scary um, that students and pre-service teachers are going to be going out into, right? I mean, if you're teaching cursive, um, that doesn't really change, right? <laughs> like, you paper out, you're like, I know that you're doing this wrong, let's slap the ruler on the hands, right? right? But if you're like, all right, today we're going to do a project to explore, you know, different forms of language throughout the world, 
and you just set them loose on an internet browser to do research. Almost anything could come out of that kind of project. So I just think it's a different world, and it's a lot less known and locked down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and don't worry, Ben. We, we no longer slap the ruler. We just uh, <laughs> restrict their Facebook time or their Facebook access. <laughs> yeah, there you that, go. That, that's the new rule. Fate worse than death, right? Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> well, and, and it's interesting because Maria, I think, kind of switched the focus there a little bit, and it's, I think, to a very important point for our future teachers and one that I had with my students just in class the other day. Just They saw the benefits of using technology as a way to help students communicate and we're talking about classroom blogs and Facebook pages and all of the ways that they felt they could engage and build relationship with their students. And then unfortunately I had to play that other card and that other saying, well what about and bring in the legal aspects of it Mm -hmm. that we too often see advertised about schools and about technology where people have taken a video with their phone of something that's going on, posted it on YouTube, caused problems, the bullying issues, all of those things are all part of it. And that's why I think, again, returning to one of Eric's comments earlier on, the digital citizenship piece needs to be all teachers, all disciplines, all the time, because it's it's become a new responsibility, it's become a new way of being that some of us aren't real comfortable with mm-hmm. uh, the openness, the freeness, and, and the immediacy of it. Uh, sometimes you, you find out things by seeing it posted on YouTube before your child's even gotten home from school. Mm-hmm. And, and for a lot of parents and for all of it, that that's scary. Yeah. A few years ago, I remember being in a classroom, a second grade classroom, and the teacher was using Twitter in a second grade classroom. And if I just say that straight away, I have, and this was at the time, more than it is today but I remember people would say really that seems really reckless and I would say why and and there was a lot of reasons why using Twitter in a second grade classroom was somehow inappropriate and I said well let me explain what she did she had an an invited group only so it was a locked down group and she invited family um, of the class so you had to be a parent or a grandparent and maybe a sibling but I think there was some criteria upon which you could be involved in this Twitter feed and it was about 40 or so names of, of for a class that was about 25 students. And they would tweet out every morning a question. And the questions would be like, does, does anyone out there, um, is anyone out there from Germany? And could you share a little bit with our class about your the German experience or something like that? And I'm making that up, but it gives you an idea of it. And then at lunch, they would check. <laughs> and by so and said, they found one German word that was 140 characters. <laughs> <laughs> and people would send back in these responses. Right. And then they would talk about it. And I, the one I'm remembering was someone from a grandparent in Germany, like sent a message from Germany. And so it gave the teacher an opportunity to talk about Germany. It gave them, an, and maybe it was some, maybe this, the original question was something about an international, something or a European co- country or something like that. But it gave the teacher now all these ways of helping the students visit at least in their minds and their imagination, Germany with that person and communicating with them. So Twitter became a tool for engagement. It wasn't the thing itself. And so, so often Twitter is maligned for being full of hate speech and it's weaponized against people. And and all those things are true. It can Mm -hmm. be that way, but it can also be a very productive tool. Helping people see the difference in that tool use is a part of digital citizenship. And I think that to Randy's point, the ability to see it across the curriculum, the ability for everyone to have an appreciation for why we need to have good digital citizenship, because it can, it is part of the fabric that makes the tool useful. So it's not really about the tool. I worry though in the resistance that you brought up a little bit ago, Maria, I worry that the resistance sometimes is to the tool itself. Like, oh, the mm-hmm. tool is destructive. Yeah. You know, a cell phone can be, you can stare in it all day and get nothing done in your life. 
or it can be something that's really constructive. It helps you find where you're going. It helps you communicate with people. It helps you research. Yeah. But it's about it's not about the tool. It's about how we our behavior with the yeah. tool. Yeah, and that's, and that's really what I think what the ISTE standards are about. It is. And, and that's the conclusion, actually, that the students came to yesterday is not the tool that's bad. It's how it's used by the people who utilize the tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they understood it, and they, they understand that you can change settings and do things. And sometimes... Those of us who are a generation or perhaps, you know, perhaps a little bit older, I don't know about all those settings, even in my own classroom. And I've had the students say, oh, and they say, well, why don't you just do this? Dr. Rich, you could, you could change this. Oh, cool. Show me how. And, and they're happy to show. And then you can restrain, and then you can do the things like Eric's talked about. And then again, it becomes a tool for good, mm-hmm. not how it's used to 140 characters at a time right. to do bad things. That's a great point. I think it's so important to recognize that all these different tools have sets of what you might call like an affordance of something that it's mm-hmm. going to allow you to do. And I I would disagree that technology is totally neutral because I do think it's they're designed with certain principles and they sort of are funneled along certain paths and have certain biases. And usually it's like, how do we keep people on here longer? How do we get oh. them clicking more? How do we make this company more money by getting ads? Um, but usually... Uh, I think a, well, I think a useful part of digital literacy or becoming a good digital citizen as far as employing technology in education is not just learning one tool, but learning like how do I interrogate this tool and find out what it's good at and what it maybe wants me to do that I don't really want to be doing and where are the settings that I can change or how do I adjust analyze, my behavior? How do I adjust my behavior yeah. or how do I compare and contrast it to what else is out there and pick the one that's the best for this classroom or for this purpose and and or pick a different one. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, the, the Twitter example is an interesting one because the teacher had to push back against the negative reaction she got from some parents in that mm-hmm. class. Because I asked her, you know, how did the, how did this rollout go? And she goes, oh, not well at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, but I really want the students to see that Twitter is not just something that gets talked about. I want them to be able to see what it looks like. And she had a projection um, or a projector yeah. going with Twitter on it, her Twitter feed going on yeah. it and things. And it allowed them to see a, a safe area of what Twitter is. And... Um, and I think that to your point, I think she was trying to help them, those students, see how you vet the tool. Right. But and and you can start as early as second grade because as early as second grade, you can go onto a search engine and look up anything you want. Yeah. You know, and and most parents don't have settings on their computer set to censor. You know, the the wild west that's out yeah. there, so or on their kids' cell phones, or on their kids' cell yeah. phones, and so many places <laughs> where kids just have you know, just unfettered access to anything. So yeah. help, why not at an early age help them to see, just to do exactly what you're talking about, Ben, which mm-hmm. is to vet the tool. And right. be critical thinkers. And, and Ben, you just gave the, the main justification for SD standards in the first place. Right. We want people to be critical thinkers. And if we embed that instruction and have them look at the technology when they're learning to be teachers, then they can help their students look at the technology, look at it critically. What is this meant to do? What can it do? What could be some misuses? And, and you, you raise that, that critical application, the hows and the whys that, that this thing is about. And that is the justification for that. That's what ISTE wants to do. They want right. to raise that global awareness uh, so that this is a common understanding no matter who you're communicating with. Yeah. Well, one, I think, last point in regard to kind of the ISTE standards that I wanted to ask about um, is kind of where you see it going or where it might need to add on, you know, a different viewpoint or to morph a little bit. Um, Just to my thinking, um, so much of technology is about communication and social media and interaction. um, And it's so powerful, but really what it takes to capitalize on it is attention, right? 
Um, and so with technology kind of be a distraction and having so much possibility and maybe you're going off and just looking up your hobby or shopping or maybe you are looking at really cool stuff relating to your uh, field of study or whatever. Um, I'm just curious if you think like some sort of like focus training or some kind of like attention training or something like that um, could or should be incorporated into something like the ISTE standards in the future. That's a that's a really good question. That's a really good question, though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I where I think the future. I don't know. I don't have an answer to your question. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't know what necessarily that should look like. I think as I look out, I think that as we think of digital literacy, I think we are nearing the end of Act One of digital literacy as a if it was a if it was a play, Mm -hmm. and that is that you can use a computer and a tablet and a cell phone, and you know how to find information. You know how to use that information. Um, and you're digitally literate. And maybe you're fairly sophisticated with it. You're able to, to, to use a lot of the formatting features like in a Word document or PowerPoint, or not PowerPoint, but Photoshop. You're a sure. pretty sophisticated user. But as we move away from devices and we have more wearables and we have augmented reality, artificial intelligence, really strong predictive analytics coming, will it, in, to me, it, I feel like that's the starting that's the starting point of act two of the new kind of digital literacy. Moving past what we these foundational things to some other new area where we have to do things like um, differentiate between reality and and virtual and right. digital and in, a, in different ways. And our identity construction is part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really about being able to master the tool as it's better understanding who we are. And so looking to the future, I wonder how our, our standards and how we teach and what we think about will change on that trajectory. But, in, but to answer your question directly, <laughs> yeah. 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 We kind of shifted it from yeah. like it's not so much even about paying attention as being able to like discern yeah. reality at some yeah. level. Yeah, because right. the blended reality stuff that I've been seeing coming out on the commercial side, where you're walking down the street and advertisers can just blanket you with information through your phone and make, and then will be able to in, in real space be able to make things appear that aren't really there, is really going to challenge. I mean, if there's a picture that went out in, on Twitter a couple months ago of this little girl hugging a water heater mm-hmm. that looked like a robot. Um, and she really anthropomorphized it to the point where she was hugging it and said, I love you. And she mm-hmm. was about four years old. Um, what's that little girl going to do when that robot isn't a water heater, but when that robot is something that interacts with her in a virtual space and seems very real? Mm-hmm. And those yeah. are the kinds of literacy issues that I, I worry about mm-hmm. for the future. How will we help people be those discriminating consumers and users yeah. that we need them to be. Mm-hmm. And, and not by any way in answering or in answer to your question, Ben, but, but I think, and I'll compare it to STEM, I'll compare it to the science, technology, and I, what, what sparked that? What got that going? Well, something got it going, and it was certain people who got into space before other people got into space, <laughs> and all of a sudden we need to focus on X, Y. And I, I think, well, Eric doesn't feel he has an answer to your question. I think in part he did. Because there's going to be something that's going to dictate whether we need, whether it be a focus or an attention or mm-hmm. a, something's going to dictate that. And that something is going to be something bigger, something newer. Some, For example, when the web first came in, into being, that was a pretty big deal. And it, it kind of snuck in a little bit on, on some folks, but on others it was right there. I think there's going to be one of those things hmm. um, that's going to not only move us into action, but mandate us into action, mm-hmm. uh, just in order to keep to keep our kids not only safe, but mm-hmm. also to give them maximum opportunity, maximum access, maximum ability to do the, some of the things that, frankly, 
we can't even imagine they're going to be able to do now. Right. Uh, that's why Eric needed to come because he's got a much better imagination <laughs> in that than I do, and, yeah. I, and I just I think there's going to be one of those, yeah. one of those events, one of those things is going to occur, and and that's going to guide, you know, Act Two. Yeah, I think Act Two is going to be. I think it's going to be a lot of operating systems that are guided by artificial intelligence in our personal lives, our outside of education lives, and those things will seep in more and yeah. more and more. You know, be, not being distrustful of the teacher, but just realizing that I have an operating system that I talk to kind of like a teacher and like a friend and like a companion and a lot of other relationships. And I really defer to that. Like that's really where my, in the same way that a student today is going to go do research in, on, on, in a web browser on their phone before they're going to grab an encyclopedia. And so we have to figure mm-hmm. out how we, we aren't a, a bound encyclopedia on a shelf as educators. I think we need to figure out how we can meet them so that we, in, in the word competes a little strong, but kind of competing against an artificial intelligence and operating system that Microsoft or Apple um, are putting out into the universe. Right. And maybe it'll be Facebook yeah. and maybe it'll be Amazon. Or just, who want, yeah. or just a random YouTuber. Or, yeah, oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so yeah you think we... about how much power that the, the random YouTuber has today yeah. that they didn't have, <laughs> you know, with the number of followers. And it's things that they say or do are taken as gospel. So if we want the answer, you're saying we could just ask Alexa? Yeah, Alexa's <laughs> the thing. Yes, exactly. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I do think, I think that's going to be the big thing in terms yeah. of what's going to force us, as Randy's saying, what's going to be that touchstone. That Sputnik moment will be when we start realizing that kids are hearing artificial intelligence and hearing it as a human, not mm-hmm. hearing it as a machine. And that's going to really threaten, I think, us on yeah. a philosophical level. Like, I, mean, what I, think, it's, I yeah. think it's here. Yeah, <laughs> Judging it's here, by yeah. my, my oh, nieces yeah. and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you, yeah. Hear, little, yeah, if you hear younger kids yeah. interact yeah. with those things. Yeah. And uh, looking to it as an authority figure, yes. you know, more than a teacher in front of them. Yeah. And when you have... Um, parents who are going to be using it as a third parent in a home as oh, some yeah. you, your kid comes home from school and they check in with the operating system yeah. of the house yeah. and then the kid how has, was your day how was your day make sure you have a snack your dad oh, and they have the version of the echo that you can just call and it will answer without being picked up too oh yeah you heard of that, on that oh one? yeah just open, a it's like a video open. Yeah, yeah it's like a video camera that you can put in your house and at, you know whenever your kids are supposed to be home from school or you can put it in like an elderly parent's room or whatever and you can just turn it on and it's looking showing you video of them without yeah. them answering yeah imagine you can shout to them and say yeah. come to the camera <laughs> yeah yeah and so turn around right yep. exactly I, show me your so, hands that's <laughs> right show you <laughs> but it's that idea of, of that surveillance versus i don't know accountability i guess but mm-hmm. i just i those are really very much surveilling behaviors to me and oh yeah and so what what how is that going what's that going to be in the future and and I, I don't know, I look to it with optimism, but also with a lot of trepidation. Yep. All right. Good. Wow. Well, wide-ranging conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we can wrap it here because we're at half an hour. So yeah. we can skip the, All right. yeah. the tech. Okay. Cool. So Eric and Randy, thanks so much for joining us. And thanks, Maria. We'll see you next time. You're welcome. Bye. Thanks for having thanks us. Thanks for having us. Thank you both. Bye. UP Tech Talk is a bi-monthly podcast with co-hosts Ben Kahn and Maria Erb of Academic Technology Services and Innovation that explores the use of technology in the classroom. One conversation at a time. We invite you to subscribe to the show on iTunes and Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music. To continue the conversation with us on social media, you can find Ben on Twitter at TheBenKahn and Maria at HerbFarm. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please visit our website at sites.up.edu slash techtalk. 
and browse our archives for dozens of episodes featuring great conversations with our UP faculty guests. Thank you.